This is History for Halloween 7, where we pull out the creepiest, spookiest, and oddest stories from history to give you several good bites to tell your friends, or to think about until you can't sleep at night. Hello everyone, Christine here to talk to you about a ghost, a murder, and Sir Walter Scott. I discovered this year's story when I was reading an August 1793 edition of London's The World, which led me to a January 1754 edition of the Whitehall Evening Post, which then led me to the writings of Sir Walter Scott, because that's the sort of rabbit hole I like to go down on a Friday night. After 1749, but before 1754, Alexander Macpherson, a resident of the Scottish Highlands, was asleep in his bed when he was visited by who he thought was his friend. When the visitor told Macpherson to come outside with him, he followed, of course, only to have it revealed that it was actually the ghost of an English soldier. That escalated quickly. First it's your friend, then it's a ghost. The ghost explained that he was Sergeant Arthur Davis and he belonged to one of the Crown regiments that had been in the region in the aftermath of the Jacobite Rising. The Jacobite Rising was when Bonnie Prince Charlie rose up against the Crown in an attempt to restore his family line back to the throne. His grandfather was King James VII of Scotland, also known as King James II of England, and had been overthrown in favor of William and Mary sometime prior. The Rising was unsuccessful, but one reason it might sound familiar is because it's featured on the book and TV series Outlander through Jamie Fraser. Sergeant Arthur Davis, the ghost, tells McPherson that he desperately needs his help. He needs McPherson to go to a hidden place near the Hill of Christie and locate where he was murdered, then collect his bones and give them a proper burial. It is highly suggested that he bring his friend with him to help out. McPherson was convinced enough by the ghost's appearance that he did go to the indicated location where he did, in fact, find the dead soldier's decaying remains. But he did nothing about it until the ghost visited him a second time to point out that he had not fulfilled his promise. On the second visit, McPherson had the wherewithal to ask dead Sergeant Arthur Davis who killed him. Davis gave him the answer of Duncan Terrig and Alexander MacDonald. And I guess satisfied with that, McPherson recruited his friend and did as he was instructed, burying the bones and aware of who killed Arthur Davis. This story is what Alexander McPherson told the Scottish court in 1754 when Duncan Terrig, alias Duncan Clark, and Alexander MacDonald, two Highland Scotsmen, were brought in on the charges of killing Davis. According to that contemporary Evening Post article I mentioned, They allegedly did this as Davis was at the Hill of Christie, and they stabbed him in the stomach with a dirk and then shot him with a gun in September of 1749. Not exactly pleasant. McPherson's story about the ghost was corroborated by the friend who helped him bury the bones, and a woman named Isabel McHardy also agreed. She stated that she saw a naked man walk towards McPherson's bed on the night he claimed he was visited by the ghost of the dead sergeant, because of course the ghost was naked. I guess all ghosts are naked if they want to be. I don't really know how that works. But was the word of the murdered enough to convict the alleged murderers? Unfortunately for the ghost, no. Calling upon the supernatural made the court kind of raise its eyebrow, and the two defendants were let go. 
though it did not mean that people thought they were innocent. Almost every mention of this case that I found says that people believed they did commit the murders. The case eventually caught the attention of Sir Walter Scott, yes, the author of Ivanhoe. He engaged with it twice in the early 1830s. He mentioned it in Letter 10 of his Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft, and in a separate piece specifically about the trial that he edited for the Ballantine Club. Scott explained in both cases that it was particularly odd that McPherson claimed the ghost spoke to him in Gaelic, despite being an English soldier who did not know the language, and that, yes, everybody believed the two accused did actually kill Davis, but that the word of the ghost was not taken seriously. So, what do you think? Did the ghost of Sergeant Davis really identify his own murderers? Or, is it more likely, as Scott suggests, that McPherson had some inside knowledge about the murder, but was afraid of retribution if he informed on his countrymen. So he fabricated the ghost story to free himself from potential death for ratting them out. (laughs) Some of you may know Agatha Christie. She is one of the best-read authors of the 20th century. She wrote the books of famous detectives, like Miss Marple. Her books make great movies, like Murder on the Orient Express. But for 11 days in 1926, this famous mystery writer was the subject of her own mystery when she disappeared without a trace. 11 days is a long time to disappear, especially in the days before cell phones and facial recognition technology. For the queen of mysteries to be the subject of mystery herself is a great story perfect for Halloween. On the 3rd of December, 1926, Agatha Christie was home all day. As evening fell, she ate dinner with her family, and at 9 o'clock at night, she went upstairs to kiss her daughter goodnight. She then went outside and disappeared. Her daughter, Rosalind, was unable to find her mother or the car the next morning. Records show that as many as a 1,000 police officers were part of the search for the famous author. The first break in the case came when her car was found close to the silent pool. An ominous sign. The silent pool has been famous for literally more than a thousand years as a spring of water that attracts tragic deaths. Some say it is the most haunted body of water in all of Surrey, England, and some even say if you pass by it alone at night, the spring will call to you, begging you to step into its waters. The earliest story about this pool comes from King John's reign, from Robin Hood fame, between 1199 and 1216. A woodcutter's daughter was called to the pool when approached by the king's entourage on horseback. She hid from the royal party by ducking into the pool, but the spring drew her under the water and she drowned. Since the 1200s, stories have survived about seeing or hearing this young maiden's voice near the pool. Other stories have grown as well, almost always about children being forced into the pool in order to escape something dangerous or scary. So finding Agatha Christie's car nearby was an ominous sign. Had she been pulled by its call? Was her body at the bottom of the haunted silent pool? The police investigated but came up empty-handed. Clearly 1,000 officers was insufficient to solve this mystery. And so, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries and a friend of Agatha Christie, thought different. A known devotee to the occult, 
he felt a powerful draw to mysterious forces. He obtained one of her gloves and began conducting rituals in order to try and find the missing author. He was not the only medium to explore this idea. Much later, in 1979, famous Hollywood medium Tamara Rand tried to channel her spirit to get Agatha Christie to reveal what had truly happened. Christie's voice floated in the room, according to those in attendance, and said, The key to my disappearance lies in Para Palace, which led to a search for the hotel, the Para Palace. This investigation contributed to the discovery of a secret key in the room where Christie had stayed. This further led to a lock between two walls. However, the ghost said a box of letters would be found in such a secret space, and nothing was there. A hoax, perhaps? Or maybe just a false lead? Maybe someone had already found the box of letters? People wondered if she had been possessed by spirits, called to the drowning pool, or even abducted by aliens. The point about aliens should not be quickly dismissed. Not only did Arthur Conan Doyle point to powerful spirits, but later famous commentators felt very strongly that Agatha Christie's disappearance had to be the work of mysterious aliens hoping to learn more about humanity. Famously, this includes Ron L. Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. He felt strongly that Agatha Christie's disappearance had to be a part of a larger experiment of aliens to learn more about human civilization. After his death in 2004, a seance connecting with Ron L. Hubbard claimed to reveal the truth after he had crossed into the afterlife. With the wisdom and knowledge afforded by being in the afterlife, Hubbard had proved, according to the seance, that Agatha Christie had indeed been kidnapped by aliens. The interlocutor recorded the alien's type and even the name of the alien that had kidnapped the famous author back in 1926. The idea that Agatha Christie was abducted by aliens has even been written into Doctor Who canon, which we all know is the most reliable historical source of all, a Time Lord, who spent 11 days with Agatha Christie as she was abducted by a race of wasp aliens. But I digress, because on the 14th of December, Agatha Christie was found safe and alive. She had not drowned. She had not been in space. She was found in North Yorkshire in a hotel with a completely wiped memory. She did not know anything for the past 11 days. So who knows, maybe she did feel drawn to a pool. Maybe she was following a ghost leading her away from her life and her loved ones. Maybe she did board a ship and fly it away with her aliens. Although what seems much more likely is simply tragic. Agatha Christie was not drawn by any mysterious forces. Sadly, just before she disappeared, her mother had passed away. The grief of this can be severe and overwhelming, especially when you learn that around the same time, your husband has been carrying on an affair with a mistress. When Agatha Christie was found in her hotel, she had no memory, but she had signed into the hotel under a curious name, Teresa Neal the name of her husband's mistress. So what happened to Agatha Christie? Did grief cause her to consider suicide near the silent pool? Did she flee an impossible situation with her husband during the grief of losing her mother? 
Did she disappear because of ghostly apparitions, or was she kidnapped by aliens, or did she just suffer the grief of death, followed by the discovery of her husband's infidelity, and run away to cope with that trauma of so much grief at once? Agatha Christie never spoke candidly about her disappearance, but after all this time, it certainly feels like a mystery worth one of her famous detectives. Elizabeth here, and for Halloween 7, I'm back with a story about a burial gone wrong outside Atlanta, Georgia. I found this story courtesy of Kelly Woodard Palakshapa, who works with New South Associates and is a board member of Flat Rock Archives in Cap County, Georgia. During the Great Depression, young people toured the South recording interviews with, well, a lot of different people. And by doing so, they constructed an important depository of oral history. But what I didn't know was that some of the stories recorded included legends surrounding conjuring, magical healing, and otherwise unnerving events. One of the people interviewed by a member of the WPA was Emmeline Hurd, who had been born enslaved on a farm in McDonough, Georgia, but by the 1930s, she was in her 80s and living with some of her children and grandchildren. Emmeline was interviewed three separate times, and her stories included a lot of information on conjuring in the black community before and after slavery. Perhaps one of her most unsettling stories involves a couple who lived in Macon, Georgia, and who lost their young baby to an illness. Emmeline said she heard the story from her son, Sid, who was a sexton at Southview Cemetery outside of Atlanta. Southview had been founded in 1886 so that black people could be buried in a respectful manner. Those who have listened to my episode in Washington Park Cemetery will understand what I mean as segregation even impacted burial in the post-Civil War South all the way through till the Civil Rights Movement. But the story I'm relating happened around World War I, or the early 1920s. According to Emmeline, this couple lost their baby, and although they lived hours away in Macon, they had bought plots in Southview Cemetery. They held the funeral in Macon, but then took the baby to be buried in Southview, outside Atlanta. A few weeks later, Emmeline's son, Sid, received a call at work. It was the baby's mother, and she was calling long distance. Mr. Hurd, she said, I called to tell you that me and my husband can't rest at all because we can hear our baby crying every night and it's worrying us to death. Our neighbors next door say our baby must be buried wrong. You see, as Emmeline explained, it was believed that people had to be buried with their head facing east, so that when Judgment Day came and the angel Gabriel blew his trumpet, everyone would rise up facing the east. Emmeline's son insisted that he had buried the baby based on how the box was labeled, but that wasn't enough for the mother. She asked Sid if they could dig her baby up and check. Sid Hurd agreed, though he said he would wait until the mother visited the cemetery. Unfortunately, the mother became ill, but some of her friends were able to go when they arrived, dug up the grave, opened the coffin, and discovered that indeed, the baby had been buried wrong and the box was mislabeled. They turned the box around and reburied the baby. A week later, the mother called Emmeline's son and told him that she hadn't heard her baby cry since the day her friends visited Southview Cemetery. As she said, Well, I haven't heard my baby cry at all in the past week. I wasn't there, but I know the exact date you took my baby up, because I never heard it cry no more. (laughs) 
Hello, footnoting history friends. Kristen here, and have I got a creepy story for you this Halloween. I'm going to take you to the 11th century, to France, to a lonely little place just outside the city of Mekon. It was here, not far from a small church dedicated to St. John in the forest of Chatenay, that it happened. One day, a man and his wife were walking through the woods, and as so often happens in these kinds of stories, they needed a place to rest and decided to knock on the door of a lonely little hut. They were invited inside by the man who lived there, and they rested, and as their eyes adjusted to the dark, they saw something horrible. All around them, in the corners of the hut, were the severed heads of men, women, and children. It's not clear from the story whether they tried to play dumb and just go on their way, or if they understandably, obviously freaked out. The story just says that the man, quote, paled and tried to leave, and the owner of the hut, quote, tried to make him stay. It's especially at times like these when you really wish that medieval chroniclers explain things more, so you'll just have to fill in the gaps for yourself. But never fear, dear listeners, the man prevailed and fled with his wife back to the city of Mekon, where he quickly told everyone what had happened. The Count of Mekon, a man named Otto William, rallied a small band of men and sent them to the woods to figure out the truth. And this is what they saw, quote, They found the cruel man in his hut, together with 48 severed heads, whose bodies he had devoured with his beastly mouth. Okay, so, wow, 48 heads. Because 47 is not quite enough, and 49 is just tacky, I guess. I don't know about you, but I got some questions, like... Why did he eat the bodies, but not the heads? Did he just not like heads? Was he saving them for later? Were they just a lot of work and not a lot of payoff? Kind of like crab legs? Or maybe they were trophies. Also, were these mummified heads or skulls? And how did this guy manage to kill all of these people without anyone noticing? Were they all travelers? People who no one liked anyway and didn't miss? See? Lots of questions. Medieval writers are often stingiest on the details. I want to know the most. The man who wrote this particular story down, Ralph Glaber, does tell us what happened to this high medieval serial killer. Otto Williams' men took him back to Mekon, tied him to a post in a barn, and burned him. The story of the wild man appears in the fourth book of Glaber's histories, which is this sprawling composition begun sometime in the 1020s. Before book four gets to the story that reads like a medieval urban legend, it talks about the emergence of heresy in Italy, God's punishment towards sinners, and an awful famine sweeping the land. That last one maybe relates most obviously to the wild man and his strange diet. During the Great Famine of the early 14th century, there are many sources that talk about desperate people eating just bizarre things, like acorns or shoe leather, tree bark. Occasionally, they also mention cannibalism, but 
Historians believe this was more a way of signaling just the sheer horror of the event, which is estimated to have killed anywhere from 10 to 15% of the European population and affected far more. Or perhaps this was to encourage wandering refugees to just keep on moving from an area. This 11th century famine was not nearly on the same scale, but that doesn't mean it wasn't bad. Roger tells us people were doing all kinds of desperate things because they were starving. They were mixing clay with flour to make bread and the wolves were eating all the bodies of the dead people because people were just dying too fast and the living were too weak to bury them. The wild man in his hut, though, seems to be in it for alternative reasons, and the people who discover him don't seem to think he's on to some creative solution to a famine they were all experiencing. Glaber's Chronicle is one of the sources that historians look at when studying the reemergence or the renewed interest in suppressing heretical movements. Those groups of people who followed a non-Orthodox version of Latin Christianity and who couldn't be persuaded to mend their ways. And the reason is that in an earlier book of the histories, Roger gives us one of the first accounts of a heretical group being discovered in the city of Orléans in 1022, and the first instance of a group of heretics being burned for their religious crimes in Western medieval Europe. Burning was a hard way to go. It was a particularly harsh punishment that has interested a lot of historians. It was not a very common thing to do, and so it's wrapped up in a lot of religious symbolism and meaning, and it's something you only do for the very worst of the worst. Like, guys who keep head collections in their houses and prey upon passers-by and who are maybe just the type of thing a medieval Christian chronicler wants his audience to expect, especially if they allow heresy to go unpunished in their lands. So, if this Halloween you happen to be walking through the woods and you see a lonely little hut and you think, maybe it would be a nice time to stop and rest for a while. Maybe... Maybe you just keep walking. Happy Halloween.